Welcome to episode 184 of Telepractice Today with Kim Dutro-Allen and Dr. Todd Houston. Okay, welcome back to another episode. Um, I wanted to share a tip that I kind of rediscovered, I think, after ASHA that I wanted to remind people about, and that is the ability of your iPhone, or if you have a similar phone, they may do something similar, um, to copy and paste text from just like a picture. So what I did at ASHA was I would take pictures of everyone's business cards that they handed me, Mm -hmm. and then I was able to really easily copy and paste from the picture, and you can create contacts right from there into Mm -hmm. your phone. I put it in an Excel sheet to keep track of everybody, but I think it has so many applications for things that we might do, like maybe we have a paper um, worksheet that we had used and we just want to get some information off of it real quick to share with our students. I also like using my iPhone as a quick scanner for things. Mm -hmm. Um, The Notes app does a really good job of scanning that it looks like, it doesn't look like a photo, it looks like a scan of a document. Um, So just using those little tips and tricks with your, the technology that we have with us every day to make our lives a little bit easier. And Apple, and I, again, we're, we both use Apple products. Yeah. Uh, although we're not endorsing Apple, if they want to endorse oh, us, that would be awesome. Sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> but they, you can also set up your your iPhone to be your your camera for yeah. practice. Yep. Or use it as as a document camera. Document camera. I've yeah, and I've seen people use some of the. Um, the things that you would use to like hold your camera if you were doing like vlogging or something like that, but use it to turn it into a document camera. Yeah. Works very well. Very well for that. So, yeah. So those are great tips. And, and maybe if anyone knows someone at Apple that can, uh, (laughs) sponsor us, we would love to endorse that. We'd love to have that happen. (laughs) We, we would promote them every episode. No. Yeah. Um, so on on today's podcast, uh, our guest is Dr. Melissa Mitchell, who is a school psychologist. Yeah. And she's been doing teletherapy for a while now, and she has a new book out uh, coming up very soon. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think it was just released. It's called "From Survival to Service." The life-altering impacts of telepractice, and so she's, you know, done a good job, I think, with the book to address how telepractice and teletherapy kind of helped her with some career burnout, and it helped her regain some more work-life balance. And I think it's a great book uh, addressing those issues as well as uh, helping to guide people who want to start a telepractice or teletherapy practice themselves. Great. She's going to be on to talk about all that. So let's hear Melissa. We want to congratulate Presence for reaching the incredible milestone of 6 million remote evaluations and teletherapy sessions. 
presence as a pioneer in special education and mental health teletherapy, and they're making a real impact in solving the national shortage of school clinicians with nearly 10,000 pre-K to 12th grade schools supported across the nation. At Presence, they're on a mission to empower schools and clinicians by breaking down the traditional barriers to success through their elevated approach to teletherapy. As a trusted partner and advocate for clinicians since 2009, Presence offers its large community of teletherapy providers access to an award-winning platform with assessment and therapy materials, continuing education, and networking opportunities to help them succeed. Through ongoing clinically-led resources and support, Presence is meeting the needs and creating career opportunities for clinicians today, wherever they are. Presence is teletherapy elevated. Learn more at Presence.com. Melissa, welcome to the podcast. Uh, And if you don't mind, share more about your background. Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm a fan of the podcast. So I'm, I'm very happy to be here. I want to start off with a thank you. And so my background, I'm a school psychologist. I have been a school psychologist since about 2011. Psychology was always a big interest for me. Very ingrained in myself, just enjoying the mind, human behavior, identifying patterns of behavior, self-reflection. Working with children was something that was newer to me. It wasn't something that came very natural to me, but what was very natural to me was the school setting. That was a very comfortable zone for me. I felt like I was comfortable. I knew how to be a student. And um, I just from finding that being a, a setting that I enjoyed, I fell into school psychology. And here we are. I uh, took on my first role as a school psychologist in 2011, and that was at a district in eastern Pennsylvania. And I was there for about four years and started off great. You know, I was putting all of the things I had learned into practice. I was meeting so many people, becoming ingrained in the district. But as time went on, not too much time, I started to realize how much work was being was being fielded my way. And not just not just myself, but everyone in the school the educators, uh, the teachers were racing from meeting to meeting. The other administrators just kind of seemed very stretched then. And again, this was back in 2011 and a few years that followed. So that was, there have been shortages of clinicians for a long time now. But as we know now, of course, post-pandemic, there's the shortages have gotten even greater. So again, um, back at that time, you know, even a new graduate, the cohort of other clinicians who had were new in the field, were having similar experiences. And I was just starting to feel kind of downtrodden about about the whole thing. And, uh, you know, something that a pivotal message that kind of stood out that really left a pit in my stomach was a message that a supervisor would say to me at the time quite frequently before I was, you know, going off to do an assessment or go lead a meeting at a building. And what he used to say, which was meant to be supportive, but just didn't sit that way, was, um, go ahead, keep your head down, go do what you have to do and just keep your head down, get in and get out kind of. So (laughs) hoping that (laughs) it was meant to be supportive. I don't fault him for it. But for me, that message just, you know, it sent the message of, you know, having to go in and do my job as quick as I can, get out of there, avoid others. And I thought, you know, I signed up to be a helping professional. I, I want to help others. 
So I, I felt this dissonance that I needed to do my job in a way that required me to always feel like I had to self-protect at the same time because I really couldn't give much more time of myself. I was bringing work home. And I guess all that goes to say after four years, I was really questioning whether or not I could proceed within the field. Um, sure. Four years after that same um, that role in that same district, my husband and I were relocating. So it was kind of an easy out. Um, we actually moved across the country to California. And I took on another role at a charter school out in San Diego. And mm -hmm. I just noticed that same churn, that same improper work-life balance. And it was really, it was permeated within, within the school. So I just got to this point where I thought I might have chosen the wrong field, the wrong path. Interesting, yeah. Yeah. So. So. I segue. Sure, yes. sure. COVID <laughs> hits now. <laughs> so beautifully, it was around that time that mm. I just very randomly came across an article online about a military wife who was working abroad while her husband was stationed overseas. And she was a school psychologist and maintaining work with students at a district that she was already familiar with from from all these miles and miles away. And I was immediately intrigued and curious. And I quickly applied to the same company, which was Presence. And shortly thereafter, I had an interview that I will never forget. And um, thus begins my love story with telepathy. We've got a rom-com coming out next spring. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's <clears throat> fantastic, fantastic journey and that interview is one that i will never forget so what was so special about that oh my gosh well first of all it was part of it had to do with the setting as i said we were living in california and we were in this um one bedroom apartment my husband and i at the time and i knew one of the few things i had researched about telepractice at the time was you must designate a space you know closed room show that you have a room that's quiet or all closed in we didn't have that at the time. <laughs> the only space that I was able to um, semi-transform was my closet, which I affectionately called my office or my closet office. I did everything I could to revamp this little space, shelving unit, hung a picture on the wall, um, you know, put a little desk and chair in there and very confident sitting there ready for the interview to start. And the camera comes on. And the first thing the interviewer said to me was, Look at you working from a tiny closet. <laughs> so I, you know, I get with the little confidence I had left, and I said, "Well, it's not a closet; it's a very small room." And um, that was how it started. <laughs> up. My goodness, I, I really had no idea what to expect. I was, you know, thinking that I was going to be queried on all of these databases that I, you know, what, how proficient I was in all these tech savvy questions and as the interview was rolling i was kind of shocked how wait a minute she's not asking all these technologically based questions she's assessing my skills as a clinician i already know how to do how to be a clinician i know how to do this so i started to relax and that was wonderful but the the you had me at hello moment was when she said when when i finally got to ask a question and i said well what's the workload like and she said, that's the beauty of it. You can take on as much or as little as you'd like. And my heart kind of 
skipped a beat. <laughs> skipped a beat a little bit. Rested or better. And I said, well, I thought for a second and said, wait a minute. As much or as little as I like, what what if I you know hit pause button? We know that's not even an option in the brick and mortar setting. There's no pause button. We're just kind of on the conveyor belt, right? And she said, that's again, that's the beauty of it by design. We've set it up so that you know if one clinician can't pick up the slack, there's another one waiting in the wings to take the case. And I just felt like I had died and gone to referral heaven. (laughs) I quickly, when we finished our interview, I was offered a position and it's just been phenomenal ever since. It's been a complete whirlwind and um, it's opened so many doors in work and in life. And I can't say more positive things about it. It's it's almost like you hear um, hire for the personality, for the attitude, for the commitment. You want p- people who have the knowledge base, but uh, you can train them to do other things. So they they're I mean obviously looking at you as a school psychologist. Can you do that job? We'll train you how to do telepractice. That's right. the easy part. <laughs> it's probably what they're thinking. Right. Absolutely. Which, yeah. And so. Um, from that, and you had just had not done any telepractice before that. Nothing. Not even a smidge. <laughs> <laughs> any any skyping? Any? <laughs> not really. No, I really hadn't. I that wasn't really a big FaceTimer, and uh, I it was completely new to me. And you know, but in retrospect, you know, I did have the luxury of being able to take my time and learn it. It wasn't by necessity, which a lot of folks found themselves. Mm-hmm. The past few years so um, definitely coming from the perspective of being able to do it as a choice versus not another option of course mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what was um was there anything that stood out as like the hardest part of that transition and it being so new i think at first it was just the unknowns but what i one, one of the things that was um that really helped to ease that was the willingness of other clinicians who had come before me. And in terms of school psychologists at that time, there weren't many. That was still a relatively new service that was being offered. But once I spoke to one of them, which many were willing to jump in and meet with me, once I spoke with one and they said, I made the one girl, especially, I made a much bigger deal about it in the beginning than I thought. Once I started, I realized this is exactly what we already know how to do. And that was so calming to me. So hearing that, starting it, I mean, she was right. Um, it, I, I found that telepractice was actually much less cumbersome than some of the things I didn't even realize were cumbersome in, in the brick and mortar setting until I started with telehealth. So Nice to not have to carry around those test easels anymore. Oh my goodness, or rolling bags. Yep. yep. Saving alone, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, that and the flexibility just com- provided a complete shield from the impending burnout that I was about to experience. So it wasn't only the fact that, you know, telepractice offered so much more flexibility, but, you know, I, I fully felt like, you know, those relationships with parents and educators that I once felt like I had to shy away from, all of a sudden they were thriving. You know, I My head was so far up, it wasn't down. I wasn't keeping my head down anymore. I felt like I could you know, give my all to students without giving all of me. Um, and you know, very good point. Yeah. Thank oh, you. And yeah. you know, small practice, I thought there was more of a harmony from my in my personal life and my work life versus them being competing forces. Right. And 
I've heard you're not the first person that I've heard say that. And in my own life experience, it was very similar to I didn't know if I could be an SLP and a mom anymore. And that was something that I found once I hit telepractice too. I just like, what is it that if you could put your finger on something, and I don't know if I even can, about what it is about telepractice that kind of creates that balance, what would you say it makes it so different from when we're in the schools physically? Yeah, I think it is, oh my goodness, it's hard to pick just one thing, right? right. I think having the autonomy to to set your own schedule and to say no to things when you know, life throws you in for a loop, because you can never predict the things that are going to pop up in life. Um, a wedding, a death, um, a health issue, something like that. So knowing that telepractice sets you up to be able to handle all of life's ebbs and flows knowing that you're working with a network of clinicians who can, you know, in an ideal scenario, swoop in when your life gets a little bumpy. You know, other those type of factors in traditional Monday through Friday, brick and mortar setting where we're talking about traveling and commuting, that could hinder your your work your uh, your work life. Um, you right. Step away or you know take on another role. So I feel like the, the flexibility aspect is you can't put a price on that. Yeah. Yeah. I think too, it's like sometimes it, like you were talking about that it let you connect more with your clients and students. I think sometimes it just like takes away some of the noise of the other things that we get assigned to. Like I know, I know that there's no I in team, but there's no SLP and bus duty either. <laughs> so <laughs> some of those things that, you know, mm-hmm. that we end up doing um, when we are on campus, I think that aren't, totally necessary kind of fall away once you take that out of the equation and that you're not physically there. Oh, absolutely. I couldn't agree more about those tasks that are <laughs> extraneous or not related to our role that we mm-hmm. somehow get, you know, looped into when those are right. eliminated, I mean, we have so much more time. And speaking of, you know, working with students more, another thing that I felt like telepractice really threw the wind in my sails was being able to find a love for counseling. That was something that I, as a school psychologist, was rarely tapped for in, in the buildings. And shortly after joining on, I an assignment, an opportunity came up to try counseling. And now I prioritize assignments around counseling. So it has allowed me to form these relationships with students, leverage my interests, leverage my skill sets, and you know, really dip into this whole facet that I'm more than trained to do, but was rarely, you know, grossly underutilized. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That has just been wonderful as well. I think telepractice allows clinicians to sculpt their journey as a clinician based on, you know, the areas of interest they want to flock toward. Yeah. So Melissa, you wrote about your experience. I did. So you you had you had this experience of rediscovering yourself and your profession and you've written about this in the book from survival to service a life altering impact the life altering impacts of telepractice yes and so let's talk about this for a moment cuz cuz what i found interesting in reading uh, uh what you sent and reading through the book are the stressors and and, I, and what was interesting for me is you discussed 
the stressors right now on professionals, on clinicians and teachers, maybe, but also the stressors on the students, the children, mm-hmm. and and how we're dealing with a lot of these things right now on both sides, you know. Can you talk more about that? Uh, maybe start with the children and then move into how it you know, those stresses also carry over to the professionals and vice versa. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So just even going back further, just a very quick on how the book kind of came about. Um, I started to think I have a three, three and a half year old son. And about last year, I started thinking, I'm so grateful having this, you know, this role that I can funnel a lot of time into my work life, but also have all those precious moments with my son. And I was realizing, you know, soon he's going to be going to school, I'll be funneling more time into my work life. And I thought, kind of an unexpected brainstorm, but I thought, well, how, how do I want to utilize that time? And what do I want that to look like? And really, how can I best serve the field? And where would my skill sets be best suited? And that was when I had this moment of gratitude that I was having this brainstorm of, oh my goodness, not how will I survive in this role, but how could I best serve? And if it wasn't for telepractice, I wouldn't have had that. Um, And that was where the idea was born of, I want to get this message out and in hopes that other clinicians can have that too. Um, So then, yes, to get back to your question, uh, you know, one of the things that telepractice also enabled me to do was pursue a doctorate. um, And my area of doctoral research that I focused on was why schools should care about self-care. I know students are struggling and student struggles have only continued to rise. Mental health needs had been on the rise prior to COVID and they're just continuing to increase now. So we've got this huge imbalance of supply and demand. Mm -hmm. Um, Student needs are high. Clinicians have shortages of they're short, the shortages are higher than ever before. So I mean, some, something's got to give. Mm-hmm. So I really, I was kind of positioning it as, you know, telepractice, I think is a great way to enable self-care for clinicians. And I'm thinking that it's something that can really be utilized to assist with this burnout crisis that's happening in schools. If we can somehow find a way to improve the work-life balance of clinicians on ground and in staff, going to be better equipped and energized to handle the needs of students we're going to attract more clinicians to the field instead of having them be you know repelled in droves um so yeah i really thought it was important to you know hey are the students all right no are the clinicians all right no the ones that are left are are hanging by a thread as well so um you know i feel like telepractice is kind of the invisible link between self-care and and burnout in, in the school system right now I think it can it has a place at the table to do some to do some good <laughs> to relieve the stress on both sides absolutely yeah and i was reading what uh, one thing you you do have throughout the book the the self-care thermometers <laughs> yes can you give an example of that uh, as people you know our listeners will be interested in maybe hearing more about that Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, they're really just little opportunities of reflection questions throughout the book to do a little check-in with, with our own self-care, you know, questions to see, you know, how, how often are we making time for ourselves? How often do we feel supported by those around us? How often do we make space to fill up our own tanks? 
And it's presented through a variety of scenarios and questions. And it's just it just offers a pause to say, hey, how are we doing? Hold ourselves accountable in caring for ourselves. And it's the, real, the whole aim of those is to reframe self-care as a necessity, not a luxury, right? Until we can really embrace our own self-interest, we can't put our best selves forward for another. And I feel like there's, you know, a lot of, there can be a negativity or a stigma around self-care and is it selfish? But um, I think it's, like I said, it's a necessity to, to thrive. I, I agree wholeheartedly. And I, yeah. and I think it's only recently, I mean, certainly COVID and since COVID, but all, as you have said, all this was happening before COVID. Mm-hmm. You know, mental health issues with professionals as well as with children and students. But yeah, I think COVID has sort of focused it even more, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and at least has have brought the issue to the surface more so than than before, which is, I think is a good thing. And and I agree a hundred percent in the sense that we have to do more. We have to be a little selfish mm-hmm. and and practice the self care, the self love. You know, I was reading something the other day about you know how can you care for your family and care for others if you're not caring for yourself, mm-hmm. and and finding that space and and giving yourself permission, in a sense, to to have that that time to sort of put the gas back in the tank, so to speak, as, as you mentioned. Absolutely. I, there's a, a saying that I love. It was a quote by Ram Dass, and he had said, mm-hmm. I can do nothing for you, but work on myself. You can do nothing for me, but work on yourself. And I just, I love that. And, you know, I think so often in the educational setting, we're missing a valuable opportunity to teach the value of self-care because what students are seeing is teachers are stretched thin. Clinicians right. are stretched thin. Parents are stretched thin, racing students from, you know, one thing to the other. There's more classes in the day than less. So we're just churning out another, you know, generation of overworked individuals who think that self-care is okay or who think that burnout is okay and stress is okay. So until, you know, one of the first things we can start doing is talking about it, modeling it. And seeing that other people are doing it, adults are doing it, teachers are doing it. So how can we incorporate that into the classroom and have it be the norm versus the opposite of the norm? Yeah, I agree. So, so I just um, in a small example of this that I just started doing this week was I have started a new semester with my middle school students. So I've kind of been checking in and high school students and checking in on the last semester and seeing what was good about worked well with it and what didn't, what we need to work on. And I have some students that the most silent I've ever heard them is when I asked what they were good at or what they did well last semester and what, Very interesting. and they ju- there just was nothing. And then I was like, okay, I got to model that. I got to say something too, that like I see in them or I see in myself and not be that like afraid to, you know, pick yourself up and give yourself some compliments. I think we're so used to kind of like, trying to shy away from the spotlight and things like that. So I, that I think has helped, but what are some other ways that you kind of um, define self-care? Cause I think a lot of people think it's, you know, bubble baths and candles and <laughs> pedicures and things like that, but how do you define it? Yeah, I think it, I think it's whatever anyone can do to feel good about themselves or to nurture themselves. So 
totally hear the bubble baths and chocolates and all of those things. But um, taking a walk, prioritizing exercise, journaling, um, stretching, reading a book, listening to music, just closing your eyes for a few minutes, lighting a candle, looking at a picture that you like, anything that someone is intentionally doing to uplift themselves. I think even taking a moment to just think of something that makes one feel grateful. doesn't even matter what the action is. I think it's just the intention of doing something for oneself. You know, smelling a flower could be so simple. So I don't even think, like I said, I don't think the action even matters. I think it's more so the intention behind it. And it's whatever we can do to give ourselves a metaphorical hug has such a giant impact on, on just about everything. You know? So and advocating for that space and making space each day and having that be a recurring thing. And I think that's amazing that you're asking those questions to students. I, I like to ask my students as well, what do you do that makes you feel good? And are you taking yeah. For yourself, and I think just they seem startled sometimes when they, right. mm-hmm. but I ask it so consistently now yeah. that it's more norm. So I want those questions to get the little to ear get in their head. Mm-hmm. And so, Melissa, I'm I'm becoming fascinated with Christina Maslack mm-hmm. and what you have in the book about in in terms of sort of focusing and, and and sort of doing that deep dive on burnout mm-hmm. and how she measured it and versus others later on who who measured it um so the emotional exhaustion the depersonalization and then the reduced personal accomplishment i feel all that right now with my <laughs> <laughs> uh and so how how do you use those those parameters in the book yeah absolutely so a lot of research that i was look when i when i went to uh, delve into research on different populations of clinicians so school psychologists slps ot's mental health workers school counselors a lot of studies actually use Maslach's theories uh, to investigate how they're feeling. Are those burnout factors at play? Is that why so many clinicians are, you know, exiting the field? And you know, of course, what they found out was that one of, you know, the majority of um, issues clinicians are reporting that are causing them to have a distaste for the field or to exit entirely are those factors that are contributing to burnout that Maslach had identified. So that emotional exhaustion depersonalization, mm-hmm. just becoming disconnected with yourself as an individual. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those things are what our clinicians are feeling. And I thought that those were such big, harsh words and concepts. And it's such a shame. Do we really want the people that are signing up and go undergo all this studies and have all this expertise to support our students to be facing depersonalization to do so? so I just, right not sit well so i wanted to really call call light to that and um just yell as much as we can about it to see what we can do right exactly and i don't want to misquote uh this uh statistic but it seems like it wasn't too long ago there were stats about teachers and special ed teachers that 50 percent would leave the profession within five years 
something like that, something mm-hmm. similar to that. And so would you say that school psychologists are, you know, in that kind of those numbers? I know SLPs, though, I mean, there is certainly some that continue on working in the schools, but many of them are doing other things like telepractice or looking right. at other settings. You know, so what I can say is I know the the, the ratio of school psychologists to students is completely disproportionate to right. the recommended ratio. So in many states, it exceeds the recommended ratio by 10 times, let's say. So I don't have facts on the numbers of, you know, clinicians that are running out in droves, but just saying that alone paints a picture of, you know, a swarm of clinicians running in the opposite direction of a school building. Yes. You know, wanting to get the word out about, about the book, I, became very minimally active on some social media forums mm-hmm. and very minimally. And, you know, I recently, I was telling my husband just last week, I shared a sentence or two about, I'm a telepractitioner. If you're interested, I'm writing this newsletter. You can subscribe. I'm you know, shielded from burnout. Very, very brief. And within about 10 minutes, I would say 70 clinicians subscribed. Wow. Minor outreach. I'm not talk, trying to talk about the numbers, but it just was, I was shocked and also thrilled that, wow, maybe this could be a glimmer of hope. And, you know, it's just conveyed the need for these types of messages to get out there and how long they are to sing. Yeah. And we talked about this a little bit last week, but there was um, a session on burnout at ASHA, the conference, and that it was the most full session I saw and had a overflow that was full. And she also did kind of pull the audience on where they were working. And it was a majority were in the schools. Almost everyone's hand went up when they mentioned that setting. So I think that Mm -hmm. that's kind of like, you know, a little microcosm of proving what's going on and what's going on in the schools as well. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's even getting to the point where you know, do we need to operationally define self-care deficiency? Is that something that we yes. need to investigating and developing interventions for that? Um, what What do we need to do to uh, to to make improvements in that? And I think at least asking the questions and continuing to talk about it as a start. And Melissa, you you do talk about this in the book, but what are what are some of the downsides of telepractice or teletherapy? How dare you, Todd? No. <laughs> I mean, just to be fair, uh, what are Absolutely. some of the issues that come up sometimes? Of course, of course. Well, with technology, and yes, I do share this in the book, of course, because with anything, there's pros and cons. Um, anytime there's technology, you know, you want to make sure there's sound technical support. There could always be technical difficulties, um, variabilities with, uh, you know, having to seek out liability insurance, things where you would, where clinicians would be protected by a district or, you know, considered an employee versus being a 1099 or independent contract, things of that. Right. And then there's just some folks that thrive in an in-person environment. They want to be in the mix and in the know on all those happenings. Uh, Telepractice can seem more limiting in that regard. Um, So again, it's, it's really a matter of reference and what's most important when it comes down to some of those. But you're right, I do delve a little more into a lot of the pros and cons, downsides and plus sides and the side-by-side measure of those things for folks to consider. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's great. And I, and we've all seen that, you know, sometimes, you know, telepractice or teletherapy, 
isn't what someone wants to do even when they want to jump in and try it it's not them you know it's not what they really develop that passion for and and i see it even with my graduate students and you and you know the, the stereotype these are young students who are so technology heavy and they're really skilled at using technology that ain't so <laughs> <clears throat> some are yeah some are very good with instagram or tiktok that doesn't always translate <laughs> it does not translate necessarily <laughs> to feeling does. comfortable doing teletherapy um and so, it, it, you know, even with training, they're still apprehensive and they, it, there is just a disconnect that they just can't seem to get past. Maybe they eventually will if they keep trying. But but I do see differences, obviously, with, with uh, my grad students. So some professionals aren't going to really embrace it as much as others. Uh, we certainly see. And we, and we know that not every person we work with through teletherapy is going to be the right person for teletherapy either. You know, they may need more of an in-person model. So we all are aware of that. So my next question is, what's next for you? Uh, another book? Oh. You, the newsletter you mentioned? <laughs> what yeah. else is going to happen? Yeah, I, I appreciate the question. Really, and right now, my, my main focus is getting the word out about the book. I'm very excited about its launch and um, it being available and maintaining this, this newsletter as best as I can. It's a weekly newsletter that comes out every Monday. It's called It All Adds Up, Telepractice in Schools. And it's really, I think, helpful for clinicians and educators and parents to just learn from myself and from other clinicians about this modality and um, really try to dispel some of the misconceptions. As you just said, Todd, you know, there are some students and some clinicians that it really isn't, um, mm -hmm. it is the best path for. But uh, I think some instant impressions of the modality are something that I really want to dispel. If someone's a naysayer from the start, you know, um, I've heard people say, oh, it must be such poor attendance or super impersonal or, oh, it must be so cumbersome. Yep. And I think the opposite to be to be true in, in a lot of cases. And, you know, if you're working for a company that affirms such high clinical standards and you know, has so many things embedded into highly sophisticated platforms and resources, I mean, I think it mirrors and mimics in person and in some cases is even more effective. So, again, I would agree with that. Mm -hmm. Nothing is for all students. There's not, sure. you know, but uh, yeah, I just, you know, would love if some people that were, you know, didn't think that it was possible, we'd just take a second look. So that's really the goal. Um, I'm looking, like I said, to just raise the word on on the book and get it in the right hands, hoping that it falls somewhere where it can do some good. I think that's excellent. And it, I will say that I think the past year or so, it's been the first time that I've had grad students who said to me that they've come to grad school in order to go on and be an SLP who does telepractice. That is wonderful. Yeah. So that so that's been a little bit of a turn, uh, a change with some of the students we have now. That that that's specifically what they want to do when they when they finish, you know. So so I think it's a, a big step in the right direction and we got to keep doing that. And so how can people get a copy of the book? 
Absolutely. So the book can be found on Amazon. Search mm-hmm. from survival to service. And um, if there's any trouble finding it there, it can be found right through my website, which is melissalmitchell.com. And there'll be links to direct you right there and subscribe to my newsletter. And pretty straightforward from there. So please, please reach out. Else, that's great. Well, as you start to uh, write more books and do more stuff, you'll have to come back and give us an update on all the For wonderful sure. things. Yeah. Oh, that'd be my utmost pleasure. I would love that. Well, thank you for joining us, Melissa, and good luck with everything. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Well, that was Melissa Mitchell. Please, if you don't mind, go out and buy her book, From Survival to Service. I think you will enjoy it if you're starting out with telepractice or if you're a seasoned pro. There's a lot in this book that will will inspire you, that will help you, and especially all the information that Melissa shares about burnout and how to have that work-life balance. I think it's an incredible book, so please go buy it. You'll enjoy it, and you'll thank me later. And so thank you for joining us on this episode. Please, if you don't mind, leave us that five-star review. It always helps us attract new listeners and new subscribers, which is what we want. And with that, we'll be back again next week with another episode. Until then, be safe and be kind. This has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network.